what I want to do tonight in Lesson 20, uh, as we jump in, is to uh, continue in Genesis chapter 4. But what I've tried to do in this lesson is I've tried to teach Genesis in a way that nothing would be surprising because God already knew he was going to reveal the Christ. That everything from the days of creation to the creation of Adam to everything that's going on, we get these revelations of Jesus Christ before he became the flesh. We get the, uh, his input. I've tried to teach that through. But I would also like to say this, that may help you in your future as you study the Bible for yourself. Oftentimes when we study the Bible, we study the Bible and we try to find all the nuances of the people who made the Bible. King David, Solomon, Samuel, Samson, all the people that made the Bible. We try to find the nuances of their life and then make those people kind of, uh, you know, a sermon so we can learn from them and we can look at David's life and go, well, let's look at David's life and learn from David. Let's learn about David. Nothing wrong with that. That is a good thing to do, but I think it falls short of what we're to do. Every, in my opinion, every story in the Bible is to let you see the necessity of Jesus Christ. So when you read about King David and Bathsheba, rather than just trying to figure out how David went south with Bathsheba, that even though that story is there and it is uh, historically accurate within the story, I believe, this is my opinion, I believe that every story, every character, every person shows the necessity of Jesus, the character of Jesus, the character of heaven being revealed in humans so that we get a good glimpse of who he is. And that's what I would like to do tonight in Genesis chapter 4. I would like to look at Cain and I've entitled this, which I usually don't throw a title to you, but I've called it The Nature of God Revealed. Many times when we talk about Cain, he's always connected to the evil side of life. He's always connected, as we said last week, to the evil one, that murderer uh, who murdered his brother from the beginning. He lost it. He, uh, if you really study, uh, many theological scholars believe that uh, you know Cain is the epitome of the false religious system and uh, I'm not opposed to that by any means at all. But I do want to talk to you from a different perspective and I tried to be very thoughtful about this to share some things that may stretch you and to stretch how you've always thought about Cain and to stretch what we believe that even though Cain blew it and even though Cain is the first murderer uh, of humanity and he's banished from the Lord's presence in his story if we're not careful, this is my thinking here, if we're not careful, we only connect Cain to the characteristics and traits of the kingdom of Satan rather than could it be a possibility that in learning his life, I get the characteristics and the nature of God. Which I think here's a very interesting thought. Um, according to the narrative of the story, uh, God shows up and, and it's the next human in line that God even questions and God begins to question him with, where is your brother? And he brings out this weird thought, I'm not my brother's keeper. Why do you even care about that? And so in this narrative of his life, I want to teach you what I think is happening and what I think the Heavenly Father is doing through this. And in the end, I'm going to lead you to a place to where everything that's happening in the life of Cain, uh, I will call it a mystery it becomes a mystery of Christ Jesus and what's going on. So let's just jump in. Here's the first scripture if you want to turn there in Genesis chapter 4. And I'm just going to read the narrative of the story. So as we go through the scriptures, you will have it there in front of you. And I'll start reading in verse 6 and I'll read through. It says this about Cain after he, God dejected his offering, which is where we left off last week. Verse 6, why are you so angry? The Lord asked Cain, and why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right, but if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at your door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. And one day Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the fields, Cain attacked his brother and Abel and killed him. And afterward, the Lord asked Cain, where's your brother? 
where is Abel? I don't know, Cain responded. Am I my brother's guardian? But the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you, no matter how hard you work. From now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. And Cain replied, A punishment is too great for me to bear. You have banished me from the land and from your presence, and you've made me a homeless wanderer. Anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord replied, No, I will give sevenfold punishment to anyone who kills you. And the Lord put a mark on Cain to warn him or to warn anyone who might try to kill him. So Cain, verse 16, left the Lord's presence and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. If you'll look at verse 13, it's a thought that goes with where we're going tonight. I feel like Cain's statement in verse 13 is the, probably the best statement for the necessity of the gospel that we could have anywhere. And it's this, my punishment is too great for me to bear. There's an old hymn years ago that says, He paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I think that hymn expresses exactly uh, what Cain is saying, is that my punishment is too great for me to bear. And in this thinking, I believe there's the revelation of Jesus Christ. If a human being would say to the Creator, I'm facing a punishment that I can't bear, what a terrible Creator that would say, Well, good luck, I'm so sorry that I've put you in an environment like this and you're not going to be able to hold up because the Father is already thinking to the future and the Son will bear the punishment that Cain would say prophetically that he could not bear. Verse 6, let's jump into it. Why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain? Why do you look so dejected? You will, and I want you to underline this in your Bible and highlight it, you'll be accepted if you do what is right. Here's the thought. It appears that even though Adam had brought about the curse due to his rebellion, that it was still possible to live in a relationship with God. Because what I want you to think about what we just read is obviously Cain and Abel were not cursed like Adam. Because the curse that came on to Adam was the land, the curse that came on to Eve was her womb and the fruit of her womb and that Adam would work by the, toy, the, you know, the sweat of his brow. It doesn't even seem like it would affect the kids at all. The kids, accordingly, were not even born, according to this story. At least Cain and Abel were not. And so there's this sin, and we teach in Christianity that we pass that sin, we call it the sin nature. We pass that sin nature along. But the thing that got passed down to Cain and Abel if you're thinking sin nature, the thing that got passed down is they could not get back to the tree of life and therefore the curse that was on them was not necessarily the ground and it wasn't the womb and it wasn't the toil because God will bring that back to him. The curse was he'll die. And so that doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal when you've never known death. Up until this point, we would say, how would they even know what death was because nobody had ever died? So you would think that in their thinking that even though mom and dad is cursed and I've been born and down there is where we used to live and mom, mom got us kicked out of the house and there's this big angel there and so every time they ask, what's the angel? It's like, well, we got booted out of our house. That's where we used to be. We can't go back and get life. We're going to die and then everybody goes, well, what do you mean die? And they're like, I don't know, you die. Because there's no definitive of what death would look like even though death was working. So what, if we're not careful in reading the story, it almost reads like once Adam and Eve sinned, God is just off the planet. God doesn't even commune or come back. But according to this story, God is still part of the equation. God is still coming down to receive sacrifices. God is coming down, as we said last week, to receive offerings from this family that is rebelled. So the nature of God is that he had established a way where he could keep having communication with these humans. But this lends to be the question, how could Cain and Abel have an ongoing relationship with God if their parents had rebelled against God? And it's in this thought that I want to look at the story of Cain and what God did for Cain that maybe 
by going to other scriptures, we can uh, gain insight to the nature of God when he deals with Cain. Now, to understand the Bible, and I think it's an incredible book, but to understand the Bible, it's, it's really strange because my belief is, is that every chapter supports another chapter, varying, verifying a chapter, and so it's just always going back and forth. Every story verifies another story, and so it can be 5,000 years in the future, but it still verifies so that everything is connecting the dots. So that even though we don't have Moses yet, we don't have the Levitical law yet, there's this eternal God that's working a plan. Let's look at this. This is what's interesting. It's in the question that God asked him, why are you so angry, the Lord asked Cain, and why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted. There's that thought that God is in a relationship with these people if you'll do what is right. But... If you refuse to do what's right, then watch out, exclamation point. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. So this is a, a pretty intricate um, insight into the mind of God. There's no way we could know sin is crouching at the door except the mind of God. You really can't even see sin. Sin we would say sin would be what happens in our bodies, it would, what we do to other people. Uh, but God's mind is sin is crouching at the door. Now the reality to this would be that the best way I could put it would be like a little goblin sitting outside of Cain's tent or door just waiting on Cain to looking for someone to devour like he's this little gremlin and this little gremlin is just waiting. I mean, that's kind of the way it, it reads to itself. It, and, and it seems so unfair that God said, look, if you want to do what's right, you'll be accepted. Oh, but by the way, it's going to be very hard for you to do what's right because there's this little gremlin outside your tent that every time you go out, he's going to be tempting you. And, and I think that would bear true to the New Testament, but I think here it might be a little different. And I'll tell you why I believe that. The sin is crouching at your door, lends itself. I gave you the two Hebrew words, me trying to do it would just abuse it for you. Hatat and uh, Ravas, I think is the way it would be pronounced. But that sin crouching lends itself to that it wasn't a gremlin. It wasn't some kind of demon wolf that's standing out there just growling, waiting but it lends itself that when you look at the word sin, it bears itself to mean a sin offering. It was made for the guilt of sin and the punishment of sin when this word is given. And then when it says, uh, I think the King James, New King James and several others says, sin lieth at your door. That word lieth at your door, I just put down, it means to be laid down, to be stretched out. So what it intimates itself, and I'll show you other scriptures so that I don't think this is a far-fetched idea, but I think it bears true to other scripture. And that's what I would like to do. That I think what God did when he came down, watch now, this is my thinking. God has required of humans to bring him a sacrifice. And a sacrifice of blood, which Abel does. This is the whole fight. This is the whole reason of the murder. Abel, who last week was the shepherd, brought of his flock and brought it out and laid it down and sacrificed it. And Cain brought the fruit of the ground. And we see the story. God said, no, I don't take fruit. Very unfair of God to get you in charge of something but then not let you bring the thing you're in charge of. So it, it, Cain, according to Scripture, a human cannot go before God and accuse him because God is not accusable to man. So God has to provide a way where Cain could come. And so he says to Cain, he says, look, sin is crouching at your door. In other words, at your door lays an offering for you to bring to me. At your door there resides an offering that you can bring. Don't worry about your brother's flock. Don't worry, you don't have to be jealous with him. I've laid an animal I have provided a sacrifice for you at the door. And for some reason, 
uh, Cain did not accept that sacrifice. And I want to give you some scripture to show what I think was going on. It appears that God, if we parse it out, that it's not just God said there's a gremlin, but there's a sin offering for you to give. It appears that he's giving Cain the opportunity to maintain relationship by providing him an offering for sin. God so wanted these two boys to be in relationship with him that one of them is a tender of sheep, the other is a tender of a ground. Bring me a sheep, great, but I'm going to provide an offering for you. No different than when he killed the animal to clothe Adam and Eve. Here's what's interesting, though. If we go fast forward, we also see that this is the nature of God all the way around. That God is not going to require something of Cain that he's not going to have a provision for. It's the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. The interesting thing of Abraham and Isaac is we, if in a casual reading, we come up with this really weird God. Like a God who wants you to kill your children. Almost like he's, he's just kind of playing with him. But, but to understand what's going on, let me walk you through the story. Abraham's father is a maker of idols. Some say he himself was an idol worshiper. And Abraham, strange though God would pick somebody who comes out of an idol worshiping family, he at least picked a man, Abraham, who knew what it was to worship foreign gods and knew what it was to bring an idol to a god and how people would sacrifice to those gods. It was the given mode of the day. It's the way everybody worshipped a god. You bring your child, you bring an and typical offering was you bring one of your children and you offer a children a child to the god. It's all the way through the Old Testament that God will be identified later as Melech, one of the gods of the sacrifice of children. So God picks this guy, Abraham, before there's ever a nation of Israel, and he pulls him out and he makes him a covenant promise. And he says, now, I'm going to make your life, your, your name is numerous as the stars of the sky. And the story is, I don't know how, I don't even have a kid. And God says, well, you will have a kid through your wife, even though she's old. And the story goes, Abraham uh, and Sarah birth out Isaac. And as Isaac is growing up, we enter the story here where God says, you're going to kill your child for me. I don't even know what man would think that's the kind of God I want to serve. I want to serve a God who's going to give me a kid and kill a kid all in the same breath. But Abraham in the story does not even question God. There's never a thought for him to go, why would you want me to give you my son as a sacrifice? Because already in Abraham's thinking, this is just what you do to show your loyalty. To show how loyal you are to the God, you give your child up. So Abraham, without question, walks up the mountain with his child in tow, and he's going to kill his son. And God has approved it, which is what's even more weird. Now we're in the story here. So Isaac turned to Abraham, verse 7 of Genesis 22, and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. We have fire and the wood, the boy said. But where is the sheep for the burnt offering? What does he say in verse 8? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. He goes to kill the child. Here's what's interesting. You know the story in preaching. He raises his hand up. He's got the knife. And just right at the last second, God's like, stop it. Kind of like, that's just a strange God. Why, and I often get this when I debate on this topic. Why would God demand him to kill his son? It wasn't that God was, here's my thinking, God was not testing the loyalty of Abraham. Jesus himself will say, I don't rely on any man's testimony. I need no man's testimony for my own faithfulness. What he was doing was teaching Abraham 
his own faithfulness. Meaning, I'm the only God you've ever met that will not require you to bring a child to me. In other words, I'm about to kill my child because that's what... So what God did was not test the loyalty of Abraham in my thinking, but that God proved the faithfulness of himself to his own nature. You don't have to kill your child because I'm different than any other God out here because I'm the only God, the God above all gods, and I don't require your children because I'm going to give you my own. And so here's the end of the story. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't even hurt him in any way. For now I know you truly fear God. and You've not withheld from me even your own son. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the horns of the thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named the place. As most of you have been a Christian, this is a pretty uh, familiar word. Named him Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. Remember the old song, Jehovah Jireh. To this day, people still use the name on the mountain of the Lord. It will be provided. So thinking back to Cain, think this way. That God will never require something of you. That he doesn't already have a provision for. I, I'm thinking about this building when the Lord, though that seems to pale in comparison to Cain and Abraham, but, but it, doesn't compa- it doesn't pale in comparison to his nature. His nature is whatever I require of you, I will provide for you. So he, he requires a sacrifice of Cain and Abel, and I believe when he said this sin offering is crouching at your door, it was that close to him. So as we come through and we see that God also did the same for Abraham, and then in the New Testament, for God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus. Do you remember in Jesus' teaching, he said it's required that you're holy. Without holiness, you will not see God. You have to be perfect, Matthew chapter 5, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. What is he telling us? There is a requirement for our perfection to be accepted by the Father. There is a requirement for our holiness to be accepted by the Father. How many of you would love to say everybody in this room, including me, has flunked the test? Nobody here has been perfected and will be. And nobody in here is perfectly holy and never will be. So what God had to do is to lay the requirement out where you and I would say... My sin and my punishment is too heavy for me to bear. I cannot be perfect as my heaven... What? That preaches good. Be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And by the time you get out the door, you've blown it. It is impossible for you to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. It is impossible for you to be holy so that you can see the Lord. He needs you to know that the sin of the punishment of that and the requirement is too heavy for you to bear. Therefore, Jesus becomes my perfection and Jesus becomes my holiness because what was required for me has been provided for me. That's the beauty of the gospel. So God is teaching this out. Here's the thought of Cain. The thought of the whole story of Cain is anything that God will request of you, it's a guarantee he will provide for you. So one of the first things I believe we see uh, in the story of this sinful behavior of Cain is that God made a provision even before he murders his brother. Go back to Adam and Eve. God made the animals that would cover them uh, in their sin before Adam and Eve was ever made. You remember in our teaching where we said the reason Adam comes last in the equation of the creation is so that he could never say what you required of me was not provided for me because in the days one through six, everything was provided. So this comes to the thought, the first part of God's nature that's revealed to Cain is that God is a provider, Jehovah Jireh. Before anybody would ever call him Jireh, before he ever has a name that will be revealed later, that he will be known by later, he's still the same God yesterday, today, and forever. 
And so even though in the story it was Abraham who will label him as the God who provides and I shall call him Jehovah Jireh, that this nature of God is already providing. It was provided days one through six before Adam and Eve got here, before there was any requirement, there was the provision. Before there was a requirement of, of what you were to do, there was the provision of two trees, the life and the knowledge of good and evil. In the sin, there was the requirement of the animal that would clothe them before the animal was made before they were. And so this is the nature of God being parsed out in Cain. Let's look at the next one. Genesis chapter 4, we keep reading. And the Lord asked Cain, where is your brother? Where is Abel? I don't know. Am I my brother's guardian? This is where it gets really interesting. Uh... Because when he says, am I my brother's guardian, what he's going to show to us is the faithfulness of God. Because his brother ticked him off. His brother got on his nerves. He kills his brother and then he tells God, I'm not responsible for my brother. But what God is going to do in this, one question, I'm not responsible for him. I'm not his keeper. God is going to show us in the nature of Cain what God does that's more faithful than us humans. So the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are cursed. What I thought he was already cursed. The curse he had was he couldn't get to the tree of life. And he will die somewhere in his future. But now, because he didn't do what's right, the curse would come on him. Which swallowed your brother's blood. And no longer will the ground yield good crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on you will be a homeless wanderer. I want to give you a thought theologically. It has nothing really to do with our teaching, but everything to do with us questions we humans ask. One of the problems of Christianity is we've sold Christianity like it's a vacuum cleaner salesman. Like, you need Jesus. Well, why do I need Jesus? Your marriage will be better. Your health will be better. Your children will be better. You can be better on your job. God will give you raises. God will, but we have to be honest that the world can accomplish all of that without God. You do not need Jesus to have a better marriage. You just need to go learn how to live with a woman or a man. You do not need Jesus to be wealthy. You do not need Jesus to have a blessed life. You do not need Jesus to be healthy. You take care of your body. He made your body to heal itself. You eat the right nutrition. You can live a long time. People die at 90 and 95 and never even give God the time of day. Now what God is showing us here is that that is the potential of humanity. That humanity can live a good life but still have eternal death. It's, it's Cain. He gets eternal death because of the family he's born in. But just because he's getting eternal death and is going to die separated and judged by God, if he does right, he can have a decent life. If he lives right, you can have a good life. I think it's true if we live good on planet Earth, we can have a good life. But the one thing you can't get is eternal life. And it's the one thing we have to fight for. So here it comes. Well, you blew it, so now you're cursed and you're banished. Not only will you die, now you're not even going to have a good life while you're here. No longer will the ground yield good crops. You're just going to work hard. And from now on, this phrase, you're going to be a homeless wanderer. So Cain replies, my punishment's too great for me, verse 19. 13, my punishment is too great for me to bear. You've banished me from the land, and then I've, I've landed it in blue, these two things, from the land and from your presence. And then this phrase, in the King James, New King James, and several of the other versions, you're going to see the word fugitive and vagabond. The translation, I like the NLT, it, it just kind of makes it pretty clear without much guesswork. You're going to be a homeless wanderer. But Cain says something that's interesting that, that I think challenges our thinking is that he said, my, my punishment's so hard because you're going to boot me out of your presence. So that means that God was still coming down to earth, chatting with this family that had rebelled and in some way was having an ongoing relationship with him, 
where even though they weren't part of Eden, they were still part of God's kingdom plan. And he's still in some weird way being a father to these rebellious children. He's not stopping being a father because they rebelled against him. And the typical is, and our, you know, our religious thinking is, <laughs> there goes the apple, and then <laughs> the fire, and then the angel, <laughs> and then God's on a throne with a big long beard just waiting to kill us. But what the Bible teaches is, is that the moment they ate the fruit, God's like, okay, all right, here's what we got to do, children. Like any frustrated parent, all right, I'm, I, you just can't go back in the garden. I'm going to put a sword there. I'm going to put an angel to keep you going because you're going to try to get back in. I'm, I'm sparing you a lot of pain here because you would live for eternity and death. So, um, but I'm not going to reject you. I'm going to keep coming down and communing with you, which is powerful that God would still come down and talk to them because he's a loving parent. Fast forward to the story of the prodigal son. Just because the son said, I want my money, I'm peace out, and then he separates himself from the father's presence, the father was still his father. So that's kind of how we have to think, that God's just not abandoned these humans, he's still working through them. They're just abandoning him. This is an interesting thought, though, when he says, You've, you have banned me from your presence. The word presence is, and I think in many other versions as well, it says, you have cast me from your face. It's the word panim. It will bear in the Hebrew, for those of you that know the stories, it bears with the word um, panil, I do believe. But you've, you've kept me from your face. You've kept me from your person. See, it's this very personal thing here. When he says, you've banned me from your presence, it wasn't like that that they never even knew what God looked like. They never even knew what God sounded like because he really sees this as a punishment. You've punished me because now I won't be able to see your face and now I won't be able to be in your presence. Now I won't have any close proximity to you at all. So there's a part of this that's lending us to this Old Testament theology of a God that's going to be kept in a box that no one can get near, but at least here. Here's what's weird. They, they saw his face. Now as you fast forward, it's like nobody has seen the face of God and lived. But well, they did. Adam did. Eve did. They saw, they saw, I'm assuming his face. He would come down and walk with them. But this is what's interesting. Cain says, this is too hard for me to bear. You've cast me away from your face. The scripture is where it gets really interesting is in Genesis chapter 32. And in Genesis 32, the story of Jacob wrestling with the break of day. And when he saw, I'm going to read about several verses here. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint and he wrestled with him. He said, let me go for the day breaks. He said, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what's your name? He said, it is Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you struggled with God and with men, and you prevailed. And Jacob asked, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. Listen, this is strange. So Jacob called the place Peniel which was the same root word of the Hebrew, you've cast me out of your presence in your face. Because Jacob said, I've seen God. Weird now. I've seen God face to face. This is an interesting thought because isn't it by the time you get to Moses, he says, no, nah, you can't see my face, bro, just my backside. I don't have time to get into what happened. But that is an interesting thought that we teach no man has ever seen the face of God. Well, Adam did, Eve did, Cain did, Abel did. And now Jacob says, I did. I saw the face of God and my life was spared. So there is something going on between God and humans that God is still having this interaction. God is still talking to these children. God is still leading these people but by the time we get to Moses, where they say, whatever he tells us to do, we'll do it. And God's like, okay, that's never going to work. 
these arrogant people still don't understand. And then that's when God goes into a box. And that's when God said, if you even get near the mountain, you're going to die. That's when God said, you even touch me, you're going to die. That's when God says, as a matter of fact, here's how it's going to go down. All you people that I've been chatting with, no more. One man, one time a year will come into my presence and let him come wrong. He'll drop dead. And now this holiness of God where it goes, my pain is, my punishment's too strong for me to bear. It starts really getting interesting by the time we get to the book of Exodus. But here's the thought. God is a provider. But also God has a face that's associated with His presence. He has a face. I don't know how this works because it says that He's a spirit. So in our thinking of God, we either get what people have drawn, like I said, the, the big throne with this old man and a stick, and, or we either get these beady eyes that have fire coming out of them and this, all this white flowy hair, whatever, the wizard type look. But, but here's what we need to know is that in the strangest of ways in the supernatural world, he's not just a burp of an energy, he has a face. So I need you to at least consider that God is just not a burst of energy, a burst of light, even though God is light and God is spirit. He is spirit, but light and spirit have a face. And it's associated with His presence. The, the weird thing is he, is he begins to go through and reveal His presence, as we said before. The way He begins to reveal Himself as they move through is He reveals Himself in bushes. He reveals Himself in all kind of different ways, but, but He's not a bush. He has a face that's connected to it, that's connected to his presence. And, and the strangest of the strange is he ends up being kept in a box, his presence in a box, and his face is veiled, which is an interesting thought. When Moses goes up to the mountain and sits, talks with God, he comes back down and said the glory was so thick on him we had to veil his face. That's weird. Like... I mean, I've seen some bright lights before, but like what, went, what happened to his flesh that you couldn't even see his face? It had to be veiled. Genesis 4.12, back to it, no longer, so now we're going to pull out this, no longer will the ground need crops, but now not only will you banish from his face, banish from his presence, now here's the real key, you're just going to be a homeless wanderer. I would like to say this to you before we dive into it. There's something very cursed about a wandering homeless Christian. God never intended it. I wrote it down. The Hebrew word homeless and wanderer is dude and nuah. And it means to be a vagabond, to stagger around, to be loopy, just kind of like toggling around, almost like a drunk person. And it means to wander around aimlessly. This brings the New Testament meaning when Paul says, I do not beat the air aimlessly. I do not fight aimlessly. But I need you to understand that there is this thinking in humans that I can just find God anywhere. And yeah, that's probably true. But it doesn't mean that God is really thoughtful toward vagabond wandering people who float around on planet earth trying to find his presence. He has established something that's very interesting. Look, at here it is. And Jacob woke up from his sleep, Genesis 28. He said, surely the Lord is in this place. Well, I thought the Lord was everywhere. He's eternal, yes? Yes, God is eternal, but he manifests his presence in specific places. Though he's eternal. In the New Testament, it will go this way. For the, for the presence of the Lord, this is talking about Jesus... For the presence of the Lord was there to heal. Well, wait a minute. I thought he was Jesus and he could heal anytime he wanted. No, he could only do what the Father tells him. And in one instance it says, and the presence of the Lord was there to heal. So that what we know is that though God is eternal, that God often will manifest his presence and his power in very specific places. We will see this all throughout history. For those of you that have been around a little long here lately, uh, do you remember, I think, back in the 90s, uh, mid-early 90s, late 90s, when it broke out, quote, in Brownsville? 
and people were traveling all over the world to go where? Brownsville, down into Brownsville, into Pensacola. The Browns were revived. We're going to go to Pensacola, Florida. Well, why can't God just show up right here on the corner? Well, I guess he could. He's eternal. But obviously, he's doing something really weird where he's manifesting a visible, tangible presence on earth in a specific geographical location. Why does God do that? I don't know. I have my, my thinking to it. I mean, if God would do it in Pensacola, remember uh, the Canadian revival up in Toronto? When there's this huge revival in Toronto and people are coming from all over. It lends itself to understand that though God is eternal, in His kingdom thinking, He will manifest Himself at specific times of history in specific locations that whereby people may know Him. And this is the thought here. He said, surely God is in this place, but I did not even know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And it's the gate of heaven. Now here's what's strange. Now it says when any time his presence manifests in a specific geographical location, it is considered as a place where God inhabits, a house. It's considered to be the gateway of heaven. That's where the Lord is. That must be the gateway of heaven. Now we begin to see when Jesus says, I want you to pray that heaven come down to earth, that these manifestations of heaven's power will manifest in specific locations, which is a weird thought. How does the eternal God manifest himself in specific locations so that people may know him? He puts you there and he tells you pray that heaven may come to earth. And when I begin to go heaven, come to earth, I can expect tangible manifestations of God's glory to be wherever I'm at. And so Jacob said in verse 18, he rose early in the morning and took the stone and he put it at his feet, set a pillar and poured oil on top of it, and he called the place Bethel. It was meant the name of God, the house of God. So what we learn now is that although God is a spirit, and that God will provide for you, and that God has a, a face that He can be identified with, what we begin to find out about His character is that the character of God not only has a provider and a face, but God also has a place, and it's where heaven meets earth. God is a God of a place. That's why He placed them in Eden. God put them in a place. That's why He placed Noah inside an ark is that God always has this place where He manifests His presence so that people can know Him. He will be toted around in a box in the Old Testament. He will be placed in a manger in the New Testament. But we need to have this thought that, here's the interesting thing here, is that it was considered to be cursed to be a wandering vagabond and not have a place. A place to call home. A place that was home where you knew the presence of the Lord was. It was critical to God. It may not be critical to us. We have our own home. It's one where I live in Villarica. It's, it's my home. It's my place. But God said, and so do I have a place. I think it's why it's so critical today that we don't just wander around from church to church looking for the best place that meets my need. But I say to God, where will you place me in your home? For wherever you place me, that is where my home will be. And if I'm placed there to be home, I can guarantee the tangible manifestation of His presence in my life when I have been planted. Alright? Surely you've driven me, Genesis 4, out of your presence from this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond. I wrote this in a different version. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. This is where it gets really interesting now. The Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone should kill him. That's a strange thought. Now, depending on what kind of people have taught you or what they say, we have wrestled for years on what is the mark of Cain. It has been so perverted to think that 
It was the proof that God cursed the black race and, and, and it was the curse on the black, the black culture bear the mark of Cain. Well, the stupidity of that is that you think God made white people. How would you know? Because it says nowhere in the Bible, how would we not know that it was white people that were cursed? That just assumes that God made my race first white and then cursed people black. But the reality is he never tells us what he made first. So if it's just a color, it could be white or black or yellow or red or whatever color. But here's the weird thing. The Bible doesn't tell us what the mark is. However, it had to be something so powerful that there could be no mistake to it. And so powerful it was that the mark is connected to the vengeance of God. So I don't think it's just a little bow on top of his head. It's something that God will do to connect to his own vengeance. In other words, touch this thing, I'll kill you. That is a powerful thought. A supernatural powerful thought. Touch this, I'll kill you. And so uh, I'm going to, I don't think the Bible tells us what the mark was. What I'm about to share with you is my speculation to what it was based on connecting dots of the character and the nature of God. I took the word mark, and in the Hebrew it means oath, O-T. And it means a sign. It's pretty simple. God put a mark on him, a signal, a banner, a mark of remembrance. So that whatever God did to Cain, he put something on him that would signify a banner that would signify a remembrance. You, you Think this way, think kingdom-minded. Think that I found a new piece of land and I throw up a flag to say, this is my land, I own it. Come against me and the flag and I'm going to take you out. It's that kind of thinking. So the question would be, what could God put on Cain that would last 900 plus years? Because I think he lives, I think 900 something it, it couldn't be shoes. Well, I guess it could. It had to have been some really supernatural shoes. And God did that once before for 40 years. But man, to have shoes for 900 years, it'd be kind of boring to wear the same shoes. Because you'd wear them every day because you'd never want to get caught without them or you get killed. Like, dude, you sleep with your shoes on. Yep. You bathe with your shoes on. Yep. On his honeymoon. Honey, you taking your shoes off? Nope. <laughs> So whatever it was has to be something that can endure the test of time. A tattoo maybe. I don't know. We just speculate. But if I speculate forward in the moment of Genesis 4, I'm like, God, I got a clue what he's doing. But if I speculate forward and I dig through the Bible and I find the same kind of thinking of, of a sign and a banner and a remembrance, it takes me to a passage of Scripture in the book of Exodus. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim and Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. And after the victory, the Lord instructed Moses. Watch this, this is crazy. He instructs Moses and says, Write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and then read it aloud to Joshua I will erase the memory of Amalek from under heaven Moses built an altar there and named it Yahweh Nisi which means the Lord is my what? means the Lord is my banner and he said they've raised their fist against the Lord but what does God do? I put it in red, vengeance so now the Lord will be at war with them they raise their fist against the Lord. And so the Lord is going to be at war with them. So here's what we get from, not from Cain, but what we get from Moses. What we get from Moses is there was a people attacking Moses. There was a people attacking God's people. And God won the battle and tells Moses, write this on a scroll and never forget it. And when he does... Moses says, I'm going to name this place 
God is my banner. Because he will take vengeance on anybody that ever comes against us. My thought is this. I believe the mark that was on Cain was the name of God himself, Jehovah Nissi. This is all speculation, but it's, I think it's fun speculating this way. So don't go home and start a church on it. I'll tell you why I think this to be true. I believe the mark on Cain was the name of God, Jehovah Nissi. Why? It seems to fit the Hebrew word that I put a mark and it's a sign and it's a banner and it's a remembrance. Jehovah Nissi was connected to a sign, a written scroll of remembrance that was about the vengeance of God coming against his enemy. That's kind of how I've drawn the parallel. And it was written on his forehead. I'll tell you why I think that in a minute. As a permanent reminder that God would take vengeance. Where did God put the scriptures on the Pharisees, on the priests? They wore the tassels on their forehead. I believe that what God did, strange though it may seem, I believe this is going to be really weird. I mean, we do tattoos today, right? So it's not that weird. Like I can believe a guy with tattoos can put ink on me. I have no problem believing that the God of heaven that created ink could somehow write on the forehead, just picture this, my punishment's too great for me to bear. You kick me out, they're going to kill me. Okay. All right, come here. You're still like my kid here, okay? You're going to be out of my presence. And yes, they're going to kill you because once you're out of my presence, you're a sitting duck. Give me your head. What are you doing? Oh, nothing, just put my name there. Jehovah Nisi. Boom, there you go. I'm going to be your banner while you're out there. If anybody comes to kill you, I'll kill them. Long before there was a Moses, long before there was a, a revelation, he's the eternal God. It's speculation in Genesis 4. It's reality in Exodus. Here's where it gets even better. Jesus, behold, I'm coming quickly. This is Jesus. Hold fast to what you have that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. And I will do what? I will write on him the name of my God. Come on, that's crazy. This isn't Genesis 4 stuff. This is end of the world stuff. The end of the world, I will write on him the name of my God. And then what? The name of the city of my God. Not only does my God have a face and a name, my God has a place and a place he manifests. So we get all the way to the New Testament at the very end and he's speaking to the church going, God still has a face and still has a name and I'm going to write my name on your forehead and I'm also going to write the name of the city where his presence dwells. That's profound. I mean, it's so far over my head. I, don't, I, mean, I want to study it and do it one day. And then he even says, oh, and I'm also going to write on you a new name. Like, I don't know how this works. I, like, are we going to all... Here's what's weird. Down here, hello, my name is Mark. In eternity, are we just going to have across our forehead the name of God? So that I, I'll see Marlene and across her forehead will be the name of my God. For he is the word of God. That's what it says, he's the word of God. That's his eternal name, word of God. But not only word of God, the city of God will be across her forehead. So there'll be no misunderstanding. She belongs to God and she's allowed to come into the city of God and commune with me face to face. But not only that, because I'm a very fatherly God, I'm not just going to have you all looking like robots with word of God over your forehead and city of God, New Jerusalem on your forehead so that everybody on the planet knows who you belong to and knows where you live. I'm going to give you a new name. And I'm going to write that name on you. And so he writes down here, Bubba. <laughs> Why? Because he still wants you to know that even though you're born again, you still bear unique characteristics to how he made you. But we're all the same. We all have the same word of God. For the word was made flesh. So what I believe is I believe God took his hand and long before Jesus ever told us prophetically what would happen in the end, I think God in his eternal character took the head of Cain and inscribed his name on his head and said, I will always take vengeance against my name. Now go. You'll be okay. 
You won't see my face in my presence, but I got your back. And I, I, that's weird, right? So here's the thought. The thought is God's a provider, Jehovah Jireh. He has a face, he has a place, but he's also the God who is a banner. My belief is, is that God manifested these traits of himself in this encounter with Cain. So that what we get with the dude that sinned right after Adam and Eve, my belief is we get an ongoing dialogue of a revelation of Jesus Christ. So that in the guy who murders and in the dialogue with him in some mysterious way, God is showing us in the dialogue that I'm going to introduce you to the Christ who will come. And I gave it to you in a conclusion. God is a provider. Sin crouches at your door, Cain. But wait a minute, in the New Testament, the sacrifice has been given to you. It's been laid at your feet. It's free. You owe Him nothing. All you have to do is stoop down and take the sacrifice. But if you don't take the sacrifice, if you don't take what it is, it's going to be a disastrous consequence for you. It will try to rule you and master you. But if you take the offering, sin will not rule and master you. If you'll take my offering, Mark, sin will not master you. But if you reject the offering, and so Christ becomes that offering that was provided. Number two, what we find about Jesus is that He is the face of God. He is God in the flesh. He's a person. So though it's very difficult to say what kind of face did God have back there in Genesis in the Old Testament, by the time He becomes Jesus the Nazarene, He has a face. He's very well distinguished. You can talk with Him. You can touch Him. You can know Him. It goes all the way back to the garden. You can be in His presence. You can, where, if, if He's in Galilee, you can go to Galilee. It's teaching us something weird about God. He's an eternal God, but He's bound to a body. But wherever He is, His presence is there. That's why they would go to the house he was in and tear the roof off. It's why they would go across the, uh, you know, the, the Galilean Sea and they would go across the Sea of Galilee just to see him. Because wherever he was, that was the presence of God. And this is teaching us that God is touchable and tangible and his presence is tangible. And how many of you would say, here's what's strange, not many miracles happened outside of his presence. Every miracle we get in the New Testament it's connected to people who could see his visible face. That's a strange thought. Except the one dude, which is, and there may be more, but in my head. Hey, I need you to heal my servant. Okay, come. No, just say the word. You don't even have to come to my house. And what does he say to that dude? I've never seen faith like this ever. Like, you believe I can do something even though you don't see my face? That's a powerful thought. The third is God has a place in what we find in the New Testament. He still does. It's the church. He manifests His presence in a place. We even call them today houses of God. The problem is though, rather than His face being manifest in His glory, we now glorify people and humans and programs and so the place that's to manifest the glory of God, the church that was established to be the place of His dwelling, you should be able to come according to James. If you're sick, let Him call for the church and they'll pray and healing will come. The manifest presence of God. And then the final thing in Genesis 4 that I think was a prophetic revelation is that God is a banner. The Bible will teach us about the Spirit. don't have time to go into all this, but... The Bible will teach us the Spirit. He's the guarantee. He's the seal that was put upon you. In the book of Acts, it was the flame of fire that rested on them that said, these are mine. A belonging of who you belong to. The Spirit that before Christ, watch now, before Christ comes back, before He manifests Himself and takes care of all the sinful behaviors of the world and throws the enemy into the lake of fire, he gives me the Spirit. And what is the Spirit? It is the banner over my life. What is the Spirit? It is God's presence over my life. And what does the Spirit do? God gives me the Spirit as a way to say, vengeance is mine. Nothing can come against the Spirit of God. 
the little witch falling around. He turned around and said, come out of her. And they just came out of her. So powerful was this banner of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to you now. I'm going to leave that up there. But that is my thinking of this dude named Cain. I think that it was God's way to say, even in the worst sin that could be committed, I'm going to have a dialogue with you, and from my eternal mind, I'm going to begin to reveal all of the characteristics of my trait of the kind of God that I am. And it was a perfect representation of Jesus Christ and what would be done later. Amen? I hope that blessed you. I bless you. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. And I pray that you hear what needs to be here. Chew the meat, spit out the bone. Have a good night. Bless you.